just in the month of May that just passed, I was on holidays with our, our family. We went down to Florida for a couple of days um, to celebrate uh, my graduation from uh, seminary. And we went to the beach, we went in the water, and there was a riptide warning. Now, I don't know what a riptide is because I live in southern Ontario and we don't have riptides here, but there was a riptide warning. We didn't know about it. We were in the water. And so if you don't know, uh, riptide is unlike undertow. Undertow is kind of like, you know, uniformly the whole ocean's kind of gradually pulling you out. But a riptide is like this streamlined, um, you kind of get sucked into this streamlined, very aggressive pull out into the ocean in, in this kind of narrow stream. So we're all in the water, we're playing, and I'm with Nigel, and uh, all of a sudden... Um, I, I, I feel that I'm being pulled out with Nigel in a very, very aggressive way. Now, I could touch, and the water was really only up to about my knees, but the waves were over our heads, right? Like, it was massive waves. And so, all of a sudden, I can feel this. So, I start to, I grab Nigel, and I start trying to get back to shore. And uh, it's pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And it gets to the point where all of a sudden, I can't touch anymore. And so, I'm panicking, and I'm flailing, and I'm trying to get him... And it gets to the point where I realize, I'm like, I have to start throwing him ahead. Every time each wave came in, I was throwing him closer to shore and swimming after him and throwing him with each wave. And finally we got in, and it was terrifying. I'm not a great swimmer, so it was really, you know, worse. And, um, of course, he was having the time of his life. Yeah! I'm, I'm throwing him into the waves. Woohoo! And um, we get back to the beach, and he's like, let's do it again! And I'm like, we just about died. We're not, we're not going to go back in there. And, uh, but you've probably had experiences like that. In, in Maybe not that dramatic, but you've had experiences like that where a wave comes in and it has this all of a sudden feeling. Uh, it came out of nowhere. Well, not really. It didn't really come out of nowhere. From, but from our point of view, it, it came from nowhere. That riptide was gradually pulling me in. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses. As we're working our way through Genesis to see God's grace from the get-go, we come to this very dramatic, gripping text where Cain rises up against his brother Abel. It's a, it's a famous passage. It's well known uh, for those inside and outside the church world where Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. But it, it happens within the span of a few verses. I mean, it's so quick. It just seems like that... That undertow, it just seems like that riptide, it's just like this thing just escalated to murder so quickly. It seems like it just came out of nowhere. But you know, this is the very first text we have that takes place outside of Eden. It takes place outside of paradise. It takes place outside of God's design for the world. So this is our first picture of the fallen world. And as we look at the first picture of the fallen world and we read this text, we're going to find that it wasn't out of nowhere. But there was actually a gradual deceptive pull that was happening. And we're going to look at this this morning, and we're going to see how God's grace meets the deceptiveness of that pull. Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. So here we are, this glimpse, this first glimpse of the fallen world. <clears throat> You'll notice the word east showed up a couple times there. And I mentioned last week that the word east keeps showing up all through the Old Testament because it's not metaphorical in the sense that it was, they truly were east. But what it is is it's, it's constant reminder that they were banished from God's presence to the east. Adam was banished to the east. Cain is now banished to the east. The Tower of Babel, where they forgot God's glory and wanted to live to their glory, it was in the east. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was in the east. The temple in the New Testament, it was in the east. The star rose in the east, but then the star moved to the west, and it drew the wise men back to the grace of Christ, and it draws all of us from the east to the west, back to the grace of Christ. So here we are, east of Eden, this fallen world, and we're going to find three things in this fallen world that we still see today. And those three things are sin, grace, and salvation. And as we look at these uh, three things, uh, we're going to unpack them to see God's goodness in the midst of this darkness. But here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that the gospel reveals how the deceptiveness of our sin is met by the persistence of God's grace so that we can benefit from the justice and mercy of his salvation. So first, the deceptiveness of sin. We can see Cain's sin when it manifests in murder, because that's pretty obvious, but can we see his sin before? When we think about our own lives, we can all identify our own sin when we are unloving or selfish or prideful or, or we disregard somebody or we are hurtful or vengeful or angry. We can see our sin when it manifests in an action. It's obvious. But can we see it before? It's deceptive. So what we find here is that on the outside, both of the brothers look the same. They're both doing the same thing. They're both doing the same action. They're both bringing offerings. But there's something wrong with Cain's heart. And Cain brings his offering, but not his heart. How do we know that? I'm going to get to that later. So in verse 4, it says that God had no regard for Cain or his offering, but he had regard for Abel and his offering. The word regard in the Hebrew, it means to regard or to gaze upon. So in other words, God gazed upon Cain, or Abel, gazed upon Abel's offering, but he didn't look at Cain. Have you ever been around somebody who won't even look you in the eye? And you get this, you're just like, okay, something is not good. So you see, the Bible doesn't give us any details on this, but somehow Cain sensed, God's not even looking at me. 
he's looking at my brother. And it, what's interesting, what we learn about sin here, we learn something interesting about sin, is that <clears throat> Cain was infuriated. But notice the direction of his anger. He doesn't cry out to God. He kills his brother. That teaches us something. We're going to look at this and we're going to kind of unpack it. Cain's whole sense of his identity and his security was very fragile. The fact that he killed his brother says that his whole sense of well-being was in comparison to his brother. Because he doesn't go to God when he senses it isn't God's presence. He's not like, God, God, why? He doesn't ask, doesn't go to God. He doesn't go horizontal. He just gets rid of the competition. Doesn't examine his heart, gets rid of the competition. Oh, this is accepted, but I'm not accepted. I got to get rid of that. It's interesting. He validates himself in this way. In verse 7, God tries to draw Cain's attention to it. And so God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And this word, do well. If you do well, God is not saying, hey, if you try harder, if you had brought a better offering, that's not what it means. In the Hebrew, to do well means not just to do the right thing, but to do it in the right way. So we know, because they both brought these offerings, and what, what, God, what God brings up is God says, hey, if you do well, if you had done this in the right way, will you not be accepted? There's something wrong with your heart. God's trying to get underneath the action to the motivation. It's going underneath it. For years, I taught this like, you know, Cain's offering wasn't good enough. And a lot of people will appeal to a lot of texts in the Old Testament, and it's... Uh, you know, not, not wrong to make this comparison that sin offerings traditionally were blood offerings, right? You see that all through the Old Testament. So that is, uh, you know, that's kind of a valid, uh, uh, you know, kind of way to look at it. But it doesn't go deep enough. Because if the problem really was with the offering, God would have just instructed Cain and said, why did you bring me the fruit that fell off the tree? Why didn't you go? There's no instruction about the offering. God goes underneath the offering and he goes, if you do well, in other words, if you'd have done this in the, with the right heart, You'd be accepted. But there's something wrong with your heart, Cain. Your heart is sick. Your motivation is disordered. And so what, what's really interesting about it as well is that um, even though it, it teaches us that even though Cain believed in God, Cain's talking to God, Cain has a cavalier attitude towards God. He doesn't deny God. He dethrones him. And the whole way relates to him. So God is getting underneath this action. Uh, to this motivation. And God's, God is pointing his finger on the deceptiveness of the sin. So Cain brings the offering, but Cain doesn't bring his heart. And God goes under the surface to the real conversation. How many of you have ever had a conversation with a friend, and you're arguing, and you're fighting, and it's no, and no longer about this, right? Somebody forgot the cooler when you're going to the beach. And about five minutes in, it's no longer about the cooler. It's about the way I don't feel respected by you, right? How many spouses we have the same thing, right? It's not about, it's not, it's not this, there's a conversation under the conversation that's really brewing. That's what God is trying to do it. So you look at verse 7. God goes, I've got to get underneath this. And God gives a great visual. God says, sin is crouching at the door. What, is, what does that mean? He goes, he goes, Cain, your heart is disordered. There's something wrong here. Sin is crouching. Now, what's God doing in giving us this, this picture of this, this uh, crouching sin? You know, crouching sin, hidden serpent. It sounds like a great kung fu movie. But anyways, uh, he... He gives us this picture because when our sin, before it's an action, before he killed his brother, that sin was incubating as a motivation. And when an animal crouches, the animal is doing one of two things. It's either hiding 
because it's going to pounce on its prey. So it's like, I have to be out of view so you don't see me. It's either hiding or it's directly in front of its prey. The prey actually sees it, but it crouches so that it appears smaller. What do we do with our sin if not, number one, not see it because it's crouching? Or number two, we see it, but we downplay it because it, we're like, it's small. Look at it. You know, it's like cute. It's just an issue the Lord is dealing with me on. You know, you have disgusting sin, but I am just dealing with issues, right? That's the way we talk. We downplay it. So God says, this thing is crouching, but one day it's, it's going to uncoil and it's going to have you for lunch. So God teaches us something about the deceptiveness uh, of sin and how it works in our heart. And that's why when the sins of pride or greed or workaholism or resentment or sexual promiscuity or idolatry, it doesn't matter what it is. When they're incubating in our hearts, we're convinced they're not big problems. We're convinced we're still in control. When people try and talk to us about it, or people who love us who are bold enough to see it and point at it, what do we do? We're like, stop overreacting. You know, get off my back. It's not a big deal because we can't see it because by its definition, by God's definition, it's crouching. So, of course, we can't see it. God is inviting uh, Cain to see uh, something here about the deceptiveness of sin. Notice how God describes it. He doesn't describe it as a choice Cain's going to make. He describes it as a power that's going to try and overtake him. And so, as we look at the point of God's visual here, he's showing us, hey, listen, it's, it's deceptive because we're convinced that we're, you know, in control but, uh, but that sin is like that riptide. See, I wasn't being dragged out to sea immediately. What happened with Nines and Lion was we were actually being dragged sideways. That's why I didn't notice it. Because the way a riptide works is it doesn't pull you out. It pulls you in. And then it pulls you out. So what happened was I kept, I knew the waves were big. And so I kept Nigel with me. And I was looking at the shore and I wasn't any further. So from my point of view, this isn't getting any worse, quote unquote. But I was being dragged to the side. I was being dragged into it. And then once I was into it, I was literally fighting for my life to get back out of it. And God gives this picture of this crouching sin that obviously was there before the obvious action of the murder, right? And so it's like this animal. Now, Cain answers God with this great arrogance. And this also teaches us something about the deceptiveness of sin. When we look at Cain's response... Because in verse 9, after Cain kills his brother, God says, where's your brother? Again, God doesn't need information. There's a reason God's asking him where his brother is. We'll get to that in a minute. And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, it's such a famous line. I mean, everybody, whether in church or they're not in church, knows the line. Am I my brother's keeper? What does this teach us? If you and I were God and And Cain looked at us after he killed his brother, and he goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain would be a stain. It would have been a Cain stain. That would have been it. That's what you would have done. That's what I would have done. We'd have been like, you are lying to my... I have got fake people giving fake love to me straight up to my face? Cain stain. That's what we would have done. But look look at the radical patience of God. Look at the incredible, gracious kindness to sinners from God. Cain says, I don't know, my brother's keeper. Cain is excusing himself of this sin. Look at the delusion, look at the deceptiveness. He's excusing himself on the basis that God's expectations are unreasonable. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it reasonable that, that, that you should ask that I'm my brother's keeper? 
The modern ideas about God today do the same thing, that God has unreasonable expectations. The modern ideas of, the modern view of God today says, you know, hey, um, God's word says this, but the culture says that. I think what God wants is is unreasonable. This expectation is unreasonable. This is the deceptiveness of sin. Really, God, can you really ask that of me? I'm not sure you can. Really? You want me to, every seven days, you want me to stop and worship you? I don't know. I I think I want to treat Sunday like Saturday volume two. Or on and on and on. What? Really? What? You have that expectation of me? I'm not going to do that. This is what, this is the challenge. This is the problem. This is the modern expectation of of uh, of God is the same as Cain's. It's like, is, is it reasonable? But if God is actually God, then it's actually reasonable to expect that his word will confront us at some point. And in some way, all of us, in some way, it's going to confront us. It's going to make us say, well, wait a minute. Some, someone has to bend their knee here. It's probably not, it probably shouldn't be God. I need to bend. This is the deceptiveness of sin. There's the sin growing in Cain's heart. It led him to believe that God's expectation was, you know, ridiculous. And so if, 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 if nothing in the Bible ever confronts you, if nothing in the Bible ever challenges you, if nothing that I ever preach makes, makes you go, wow, yeah, okay, God, may I rely on your grace for you to reform me in that way. I mean, if nothing ever hits your ear like you've got to bend your knee, then you're probably worshiping a God of your own construct. You're probably making that God up. Because what are the odds of the God of the universe agreeing with you on all points? What are the odds of the God of the universe agreeing with me, this preacher, on all points? I think the odds of me at some point going through God's word and being like, hold on, I've got to bend my knee here. But the deceptiveness of sin, what? what I, am I my brother's key? I mean, is it really, you going to expect that from me? Do you see what Cain does? Wow, it's unbelievable. But it revisits and rears its ugly head. Again, for us today, am I, bro- am I my brother's keeper is the epitome of exaggerated individualism. It is the epitome of exaggerated selfishness. You know, it, him just, it, he, am I my brother's keeper says, I take care of myself, even if the way that I choose to take care of myself is contrary to your word. Don't put your expectations on my life. And so this text, it actually reads us. It invites us out of blind arrogance and into humble repentance. Because all of us in here, starting with this preacher, starting with this guy, we have crouching sins. Right? So that should make us humble, not arrogant. Be like, there's probably things I'm not seeing. There's probably things I'm not getting. There's probably things that when people in my life, starting with my wife, trying to point to me, and I immediately get defensive to protect my crouching sin, it's an opportunity for me to humble myself and be like, oh God, would you... Do a renewing work in this heart so I can be loving in this context, in this way. Oh, God, would you do it in me? Uh, but we often get angry. I remember uh, Susan and I did a, did a leadership. Uh, we were certified to do leadership training, and we worked with a, cu- a couple organizations before we uh, planted Redeemer. And we were in a meeting reading a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. And in the book, the chapter could have been called Repentance, but it wasn't because it was a business book. But we were with this one particular team, and it was provoking. Hey, you know, your heart isn't always pure. The, the leadership book was saying that, hey, your heart isn't always pure. And I remember that uh, Susan and I were in the meeting, and this, this one lady in particular, she didn't like the book at all. She was like, well, she was like, well, I don't think that, I mean, that just, oh, who's that bad? No, we're good people. Like, she was in this whole zone. And, uh, but that's the self-deception. That's the decept- deceptiveness of sin. I'm not willing to look at it. 
Don't tell me there's an unevangelized part of my heart where I'm not being loving to my neighbor. Don't tell me that. I'm a good person. We have Christian language for this, right? We go and we blast somebody or we do some ridiculous thing or we, we treat someone poorly or we make a bad decision or, you know, y'all know how business, you know, business ventures are always work out perfectly when they're done between Christians. I mean, we all know that, right? Because Christians have the market on the high road in business, right? We all know that's true. That was a joke. Um, so when these things happen, and they do, often uh, people will be like, no. No, 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 you, don't, you just didn't get my heart. They're like, no, we got your heart all right. And it wasn't good. There's an opportunity for confession there, not, not being defensive, right? But I have really good news. The deceptiveness of this sin is met by the persistence of God's grace. Let's look at the persistence of God's grace. God comes to Cain in the midst of his turmoil, right in the middle of it. Before he kills his brother, when, it's, when this whole thing is brewing, God comes to him. Cain never asked for help. Cain didn't know he needed help. What, what great grace. In the same way that God comes to Cain to interrupt this trajectory, he goes, hey, why did your face fall? God comes to us by the grace of, of the conviction of his spirit. He comes to us, the persistence of God's grace. Look at this. He comes to this unrepentant Cain. Cain isn't asking for help. And God completely defies the religious stereotypes by doing this because a lot of people think God is this angry perfectionist. A lot of people see God as, you know, like that Bruce Almighty movie where Bruce gets angry at God and there's that one scene where he says, Smite me, mighty smiter! You know, people think of God like, God is the mighty smiter. You know, just waiting for people to get out of line. God comes to Cain, who isn't looking for God's help, who doesn't deserve God's help, and God comes to him with this great grace. And he says, hey, Cain, why are you angry? What is going on? God comes to Cain like a wonderful counselor. Why are you angry? God doesn't need the information. He's asking Cain because he wants to draw Cain's attention to how deeply his heart is disordered. And God graciously and gently initiates this conversation. Cain didn't call to him. As soon as Cain starts to spiral, God's, God's persistent grace is meeting the deceptiveness of sin. Good news for you, church. God's persistent grace is coming toward you in those moments, the deceptiveness of your sin, of my sin. He's coming to us. That's what it means in verse 5, if you look down at it, when, God, when it says Cain's face fell and his face had fallen. In the Hebrew, that phrase means he was in an emotional downward spiral. Right? Some of your uh, translations say his countenance fell. Right? It's like he's emotionally tanking. And God sees Cain emotionally tanking, angry, infuriated, and he swoops in with persistent grace to go, why are you angry? Let's, let's get at the root of that. What's that about Cain? It's amazing grace. God isn't waiting with his arms crossed to see what Cain will do. And that's why all of us who are here, who've been saved by God's grace, can look back over our lives and see God's constant, persistent grace. We can see that he was constantly there, opening our eyes, opening our ears, waking us up. Right? We can look back and realize, oh my goodness, we can look back and say, I didn't figure it out. God sought me out. Save me by this great persistent grace moving toward me. The, the Hebrews, 11, Hebrews writer in chapter 11, he looks back on Genesis 4 and he gives us insight. The Hebrew writer looks back on this text that I just read this morning, and he says that Abel offered his offering in faith, but Cain didn't offer his offering in faith. What does that mean? Both of those boys knew Genesis 3.15, which we talked about last week. Both of those boys knew that God made a promise. I'm going to, I'm going to come 
and I'm going to send uh, a, a seed, but the seed of the woman, who would be Jesus Christ, is going to save and restore. Both of the boys had knowledge of that. They knew that. The reason they're bringing the offering is they know God promised saving grace. So the Hebrew writer says, Abel brings his offering, trusting in the saving grace. Cain brings his offering, not trusting in the saving grace. Totally indifferent to the saving grace. That's why he's just going through the motions, and God goes, I have no regard for you going through motions. I'm not interested in religious activity. I'm not interested in your perfect church attendance, or your, how much money you're giving, or chairs you're stacking, or work, ministry, ministry to the city. I'm not interested in your performance. I'm interested in your trust underneath. And Cain didn't bring any. And so God is trying to come in persistent grace to draw Cain's attention to the real problem here. Right? He's wanting to expose uh, this sin that's going to eventually lead to murder. So Cain goes berserk because Abel was shown favor by God. The Pharisees went berserk because sinners were shown favor by God. We go berserk when God shows favor to people who, in our view, don't deserve it as much as we do. Right? We, this happens when our sense of identity gets located, not in trusting in God, but in comparing ourselves with others. Then when, those, when others succeed and do well, we put God on trial. This is what, historically speaking, the church has always struggled with, right? But I'm very pious, right? But I've memorized the catechism. But, 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 but I have stellar performance. I mean, but I, but I am reading my Bible every day. And, this, and why are they healthy and, I'm, and I am struggling with disease? Why are they successful financially and I'm not? Why is this person who's never prayed a day in their life? See, that insidious, deceptive sin of Cain rears its ugly head in all of us. When we get out of trusting God, we get into this, we get into this comparison thing and we get angry. That's why, the, that's why the Pharisees were angry. That's why we get angry. The root of it, sin is unoriginal. It just keeps popping up its ugly head in different ways to draw us, like that riptide, away from God's grace and trust and living to his glory and, uh, and into trusting in the, the work of our hands. We get into this Cain-like resentment. So in verse 7, God says to Cain, Sin's desire is over you, but you must master it. How's Cain going to master it? He can't master it. That's the point. God is trying to draw Cain to trust. God is trying to draw Cain to saving grace. He's drawing his attention to this. You must master sin. How's Cain going to do that? In the same way that God went after Adam and said, Hey, Adam, what did you do? Now he's going after Cain. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? Do you see this pattern developing? God is like, I'm going to draw your attention to your radical need. You need me. You can't fix this. God's persistent grace coming toward the deceptiveness of our sin. This pattern is developing of God asking questions. Why? Because he's a wonderful counselor. What do counselors do? Counselors ask questions to facilitate healing. The wonderful counselor is asking questions. He asks you and I questions to facilitate healing, to draw us out of our arrogance and into humility, to draw us out of our, out of our defensiveness and into confession. And I have really good news for you, church. Even though sin is at work, you know, and it's constantly seeking to be deceptive and constantly draw our hearts in different ways so that we're not loving towards our neighbors. The good news is that while that struggle is real, God is also at work, and his grace is persistent to renew and to reform us. That same grace that rescued us is doing a sanctifying work that we participate with, not because our participation is accomplishing our sanctification, that's what the Spirit does, but our, our participation and our desire that Christ has formed in us, it's a picture of true freedom. From the Cain-like anger that rises up in resentment to cause us to do these things. And finally, we get to enjoy 
the justice and mercy of God's salvation, which is the final thing as we close this morning. It's that in verse 11 and 12, we see God's justice for the sinner is matched with his kindness for the sinner. He does judge Cain. We don't have God who chooses between justice and mercy. He doesn't make a choice between justice and mercy. He's like, I am, I am fully just and I am fully merciful. And we see God judges Cain. He curses Cain because of the murder. And Cain says in verse 13, it's too much. I can't handle the judgment. And then God gives this kindness. Do you see this? He puts a mark on Cain. It's not a stigma. He, he, it's protection. The, the word uh, mark, you put a mark on Cain. In the Hebrew, the word is off. And that off, it's used all through the Old Testament. Sign of God's covenant. Sign of God's promise. All through the Old Testament, the off, the off, the off of God, the sign. He gives, he gives this murderer this sign, this mercy, this common grace. But yet, God is still just. How does he do this? How can God be both just, uh, both just and, and merciful? How can he do that? He has a patience that you and I just can't fathom. An absolute incredible patience. Cain settles in this land called Nod, and, and Nod means wandering in the Hebrew, which is a great picture of our lives without God. It's just a lot of wandering. Augustine once said, if you are without God, you will be less. If you are with God, God will not be greater. He's not made greater by you, but you are made less without him. And so in verse 10, God says that Abel's blood cries out for justice. What is this justice? How can God be just? Well, metaphorically speaking, all blood throughout all of history that's been, that's been spilt unjustly is crying out for justice. Whether it's crime, whether it's unjust war, whether it's denying the sanctity of life through abortion, where is the justice? This metaphor of blood crying out for justice, where is the justice? God doesn't choose between justice and mercy. Our modern views of God say, well, yeah, you have to have a perfectly loving God. That means there can't be judgment. He can't hold any judgment. He can't have any, any justice. But is the absence of justice really the essence of love? I don't think so. If we remove justice and judgment, are we, now, are we left now with a loving God? I don't think so. If there, was a, if there was an atrocious crime committed against you and your family and you were there in the courtroom and you were weeping because of the impact of that crime and the judge stood up and said, you're free to go, Half the courtroom would be saying, mercy, mercy, yay! That, that judge was so merciful. But you and your family would be weeping at the injustice. So how do we have a God who can be perfectly loving and perfectly just? The Bible says that he is not one-dimensional. Our God is a God of both mercy and justice. How does he do this? Because to forgive our injustice... To, forgive the, to, to, to atone for the injustice that happened to Abel and every injustice since... God paid for our injustice. The judge became the justifier. The judge disrobed, humiliated himself, became naked, came down, paid the penalty for our injustice. The cross is the intersection of justice and mercy. The cross is God's way of ending sin forever without ending us forever. God doesn't wink at sin. God died for it. Our free gift of God's grace cost God absolutely everything. And so because God is perfectly loving and perfectly holy, he requ- his perfect holiness requires that we are perfectly loving. And that's a massive problem. Because who in this room has been perpetually perfectly loving to everybody always? Nobody. And that's the standard of God's law. Who in this room has been unloving in some way to somebody? All of us, starting with this preacher. So thus, the good news of the gospel 
is that God provided what we required. And some of you say, I'm so offended, I can't believe, it sounds to me like you're comparing me with Cain. I'm not like Cain, I'm a good person, I never killed anybody. We're, we're all Cain. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said that if you murder, you're, you're in danger of judgment. But I would say to you that if you're angry at your brother in your heart without cause, you're in danger of judgment. By Jesus' standard, we're, we're all capable of being Cain. And so he came and provided precisely what God required. And so I have good news, church. Again, the Hebrew writer, he looks back on Genesis 4. He looks back on the blood of Abel crying out from the ground saying, where's the justice? This is what he says. He says, we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the better word? Well, Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. That's the better word. You see, at the cross, Jesus paid for all of our injustice, all of us. Abel's blood cried out and said, Cain's sin must be held against him. Jesus' blood cries out and says, your sin will not be held against you. Cain was killed, I'm sorry, Abel was killed by Cain, who became murderously angry that the religious work of his hands wasn't accepted by God. Jesus was killed by Pharisees who became murderously angry that the religious work of their hands wasn't accepted by God. And we gather Sunday in and Sunday out to celebrate that the perfect work of Christ's nail-pierced hands has been accepted by God on our behalf. And now united to Christ by grace and through faith alone, Jesus' blood cries out and says we won't pay for what he already paid for. We don't earn with our work what God provided in his grace. And so the blood of Jesus does not cry out and demand justice from sinners. The blood of Jesus cries out and announces that God has provided a way of mercy for sinners. When Jesus was being crucified, he didn't cry out, Father, condemn them for what they do. He cried out, Father, forgive them for what they do. The deceptiveness of sin has been met by the persistence of God's grace so that everybody who trusts in Christ alone will benefit from the justice and the mercy of his salvation. Let's pray.